You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am delighted that we get to spend the next hour together as we journey around the arts. If you track arts coverage around the world, you may have seen over the past few days a ridiculous advert released by a branch of the United Kingdom government, thank you Boris, which shows a ballet dancer, a young woman of colour, in pink tights and white tutu, tying on her shoes with the caption, Fatima's next job could be in cyber, with the sinister tagline, she just doesn't know it yet. The poorly executed idea behind the ad was that more people should retrain in the cyber security sector, but the message that everyone perceived was, a career in the arts? Pfft, don't be silly, that's not a career. That's just a bit of fun, a luxury hobby, if you will. But as all my friends who work in the arts will tell you, most of them create art because that's what they feel compelled to do. This extended period of minimal arts is not only leaving audiences feeling morose and disconnected, but it is hollowing out the souls of those who live to create or whose technical skills underwrite everything we see on our stages. The documentary filmmakers who spend often years working alone with their subject, with the simple goal of sharing their story with a live film festival audience. To suggest to any of those people that they should just abandon everything that holds them together emotionally and, hey, how about an exciting career sitting at a desk and staring at lines of code all day so you can retool as a cybersecurity whiz? Ugh. It is so unfathomably tone-deaf that you realise the people who should be retooling are the policymakers. Luckily for us, our local arts makers are not planning on reskilling anytime soon. Instead, they are creating things to nourish our souls. Today, we'll be exploring the world of Mary Mallon, aka Typhoid Mary, who is the subject of an eponymous play that is being screened this weekend as a fundraiser for Talking Horse Productions. I'll be talking to its director and one of the actors. We will also be hearing from artist Fariona Sabori about her new art exhibit called Post Demure, showing at Columbia College's Hardwick Gallery. And finally, today we're off to New York City to chat with choreographer Carol Schuberg about how Broadway theatre professionals are surviving this time. But first, let's start today with a journey back in time. Back in the early 20th century, typhoid fever killed around 10% of people it infected. The science of bacteriology was in its infancy and antibiotics were still over 20 years away. Step forward, Mary Mallon, an Irish immigrant and cook to several wealthy households, otherwise known to history as Typhoid Mary. She became the subject of many medical papers, books, films and plays, one of which is being performed virtually tomorrow night as a fundraiser for Talking Horse Productions. And here to tell us more about the life of Mary and the play are its director, Alana Barrigan-Scott, and actor Paula Van Landingham, a.k.a. the woman of a thousand accents. Welcome to the show, Alana and Paula. Hi, thank you, Diana. Hi. 
So Alana, take us back to 1906 and give us the background to Mary Mallon's reign of bacterial shedding. So Mary Mallon was an Irish immigrant. She came to the United States in the late 1800s, and Mary knew how to do one thing to support herself, and she did it very well. She was a cook. Mary cooked for different wealthy families, and she didn't understand, though, that she was an asymptomatic carrier of the typhoid bacteria. So when Mary cooked, she didn't know that she could pass along typhoid germs and infect the families that she worked for just by the simple act of preparing their food. She had a special dish that she made, ice cream with fresh peaches, and that seemed to have been one of the particularly triggering events and one that in fact caused her to be found out when a public health engineer began looking. So that's sort of what um, brought Mary to the attention of the public authorities. So it is, of course, the perfect play for our current age of asymptomatic carriers and quarantine restrictions. But it was actually premiered five years ago, partly in response to the outbreak of Ebola and the resurgence of measles. How did you come across the play, Alana? Well, I actually heard a podcast about Mary and I thought, and this was a few months ago, and I thought, my goodness, it's so current. It's just such a current story. And I couldn't believe that no one was performing plays about Typhoid Mary, you know, currently. So I began looking around and I knew that Mary was an Irish immigrant. And honestly, I think I thought of Paula before I even found the play. And I did a little bit of researching and I I found this wonderful script by Tom Horan and it has the three main characters and it's just wonderful. And that's that's how we got started. Well, Paula, most people know you as the person who does dialect coaching to stars of stage and screen all over the world. And if my memory serves me correct, you speak six languages fluently and can pass as a local in over 50 global dialects. So you are more often seen backstage in productions, helping people hone their accents. What made you want to step into the limelight and take on the role of Mary Mallon for this production? Well, the easiest pull was the fact that this was going to be online. So given our current situation, low risk and mercifully uh, sort of a staged reading. So memorization was not a demand, which that that got me. Um, my own family background is Irish. So this is an accent that I, I can do at the drop of a hat. And I, I love the story and the timing was perfect for that. So she is a fascinating character, Paula. She emigrated from County Tyrone, which is one of the counties in Northern Ireland in 1884, the age of just 15. And I know how much you love to research. I wonder what else did you dig up about Mary that is maybe, I don't know, not common knowledge? Well, I will say I sort of leaned on on the person a little bit because she was in the New York area about six years before my own ancestor was. They they might have known each other. (laughs) So... um, the fact that what I thought was especially interesting that was in the play is that the belief of health was tied with the sort of belief of righteousness, that if you were a good person, you shouldn't get sick. And it was so baffling to her. And that's, that is an idea that comes from that era of Ireland, that if you're healthy, it's because you've been good. And if you're sick, it's because you've done something bad. 
And she could not get that through her mind that though she was trying to be in generally behavior a good person, that's why it couldn't match in her mind that she could be asymptomatic, sick, and giving it to other people. And when she meets a patient later in the play, she asks, what did you do that was bad? And I think that's a real insight to the Irish psyche around that time. There were so many super relevant topics covered in the play. Contagion, public health, class bias, gender bias, anti-immigrant bias, liberty, religion, morality. Alana, what hits home for you the most? Honestly, I'm fascinated by the gender bias piece of it. You know, Mary is cooking in her kitchen one day and she's presented by a fellow who comes in and says, oh, you're spreading this awful disease. You've in fact, you know, infected people and you've killed people. And, you know, here's a, here's a a strange man telling her that she's done these awful things. And, oh, by the way, give me body fluid samples, please now. And he just expects her to do it. I found that fascinating. And of course, Diana, you're, you're right. There are so many different themes in here. The gender bias one caught me first, but Honestly, the the fact that she did not understand that she was infecting people, and to be to be fair, so many people did not at that time. You know, particularly the people who were not as formally educated as some. That also, I I just found that touching too. Yeah, and I think the fact that she certainly wasn't the only asymptomatic carrier yet, she was the only one who was forcibly confined and victimized and sent into basically permanent quarantine, ultimately. Paula, what what was it that struck home for you the most? Well, I, I think I really couldn't escape the modern parallels, especially the fact, and once I, you know, when I do research, I do research even down to the geography of something. And I was just really stunned when I found out that the island she was quarantined on in New York is next to or very close to the island where all the unclaimed COVID cases are buried. And the idea of quarantine and exile and illness was just stunning to me that 100 years, 120 years apart-ish, the same throwaway place was where they tossed people that suffered. And I I just couldn't escape that parallel the East River. I think it was North Brother Island that she was on, right? Yes. So we have to talk a little bit about her accent. I know, Paula, that you are definitely a purist on this front. So maybe you could say a little bit from the script and then we'll talk about maybe how a Tyrone accent differs from, say, a Belfast accent or a Northside Dublin accent. So give us a little dialogue from the script. All right. Here's a little sample of Mary. I've already spoken to the doctor, if you can call him that. He seemed to not be able to tell the difference between health and sickness. And that seems to be a minimum qualification for the job, doesn't it? If I let him stick around much longer, he might have pronounced me dead. Fantastic. <laughs> so for, for the Northern, where you start to hear the Northern, is words that rhyme with mouth and house pronounced and around. In Northern Ireland, it's more like an I, around and pronounced. Uh, like, uh, uh, I will not eat it with a mice. I will not eat it in a house. <laughs> that's a little exaggerated. So that's where I put that little flavor on it. And there's a, there's a few other places where Mary cusses pretty extravagantly. And uh, <laughs> a few of the words she chooses bear the northern accent pretty well. 
I think that I'm sure that you often speak to actors who say, you know, oh, I have to do an Irish accent. And you're like, yeah, which one of the 50 Irish accents do you need to do? I do. Absolutely. And sometimes it's a matter of when. It's not even necessarily always just a matter of where, but it depends on what, what century they're from and what, you know, if it's a, it's a modern Dublin might sound different than an 1850s Cork. So yeah, you really have to know not only where, but when and who is it. If it's a relatively simply educated woman versus a priest or somebody else, uh, that might affect the speech as well. I once fell in love with a man just because I heard his voice and he was from Belfast and I just thought it was the hottest <laughs> accent ever. He wasn't that good looking, unfortunately, but I just forced myself to fall in love with him and unfortunately it was unrequited. So. <laughs> yeah, well, Liam yeah. Neeson has gotten a lot of us for the same reason. So, <laughs> so Alana, there are only three actors in the play. Paula, who we're talking to today, Lena Agens and Don Otto, though there are more than three characters. But tell us a little bit more about the two other lead characters, George and Sarah. Sure. Well, Lena's character is Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker, who is a fascinating character just in her own right. She was a pioneer as a, a female doctor in the early 1900s and had a decades-long career. She's a very impressive woman. So she was instrumental in helping uh, poor women in uh, tenements in New York to take care of their babies. She's probably responsible for saving the lives of hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of infants just by virtue of the fact that she helped the mothers care for them or she helped teach the mothers how to care for them and so that the children would not become ill. Don's character is George Soper. George was a sanitary engineer, I believe was his title. He's often called Dr. Soper, but he was not a medical doctor. And Dr. Soper, in fact, studied the spreading of disease and was the person who the family that Mary was cooking for reached out to him and they said that their family was becoming ill and asked him if he could come out and take a look and, and figure out why. And so Dr. Soper went and he went on a hunt and was able to figure out that Mary was the source of their illness. In fact, Dr. Soper was the first person to contact Mary and confront her about her infection. She didn't believe him. The story goes that she chased him away with a meat fork and he he thought, hmm, maybe maybe what we need is a woman's touch. And he contacted Dr. Baker and asked Dr. Baker to go out and see if she could talk to Mary and persuade her to participate in uh, being tested. So those are the two main characters. Don and Lena are also playing other other characters who appear throughout the play, a police officer, a nurse, and then other characters as well. I know from reading various things about, about Mary that she was really outraged and mortified that people called her Typhoid Mary. There's a, a lovely quote that she, or letter that she wrote to the New York Board of Health in 1909 while she was in quarantine, and I'm not going to do the accent, but she said, I have been, in fact, a peep show for everybody. Even the interns had to come see me and ask about the facts already known to the whole wide world. The tuberculosis men would say, there she is, the kidnapped woman. Dr. Park has had me illustrated in Chicago. I wonder how the said Dr. William H. Park would like to be insulted and put in the journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. 
I I feel really bad that this play is called Typhoid Mary. Paula, what does it feel like being Mary Mallon? Wow, it's again so so pertinent to now. When you're labeled as diseased or positive case, it's like you're treated like a leper. And and to be and like I was saying before about the Irish psyche, to be shamed and publicly so is like the worst Irish nightmare to bring shame, to be embarrassed, to be separated from the others is, is just the worst. And, um, even nowadays when somebody, you know, is positive, we think of them as maybe glowing radiation, you know, how dangerous is this person? We're terrified. We don't know. And I remember living in New York at the height of the AIDS crisis, and it was the same feeling, terror. Mm. I don't understand how the disease works. I don't know who's contagious. How will I get sick? And to be married with people constantly coming to her, and she believes, I keep a tidy kitchen. I know my craft. I am a good girl. Leave me alone, much less shame me in front of the entire world forever. Um, and, and Sarah, the, the nurse, kind of, or uh, the doctor kind of gets under her skin by saying, you know, I can understand how you might feel this way, and it's not really fair that they're calling you this. And it gets her attention because that's really the heart of it for her is the humiliation and to be publicly humiliated, especially about something so personal. And, and health is nothing but the most personal thing. So for everybody, you know, who might be listed as, oh, we can't have the football game because the coach is corona positive. Everybody who endures that is just degraded in a lot of ways. And we don't really have a good way of handling that to this day. I don't even want to call the play Typhoid Mary, but the play about Mary Mallon. <laughs> Thank you. By playwright, by playwright Tom Horan will be available for viewing tomorrow night at 7 p.m. for one night only. Is that correct? It's just tomorrow night, Alana. That's right. Tickets cost $15 with all proceeds going to support Talking Horse Productions. And the best way to get tickets is via the website at talkinghorseproductions.org. And there is also a link to tickets on the Talking Horse Productions Facebook page. Thank you so much, Alana and Paula. Oh, thank you, Diana. Now get out of my kitchen. (laughs) Is that a fork? (laughs) (laughs) Watch out. And from the virtual kitchen of Mary Mallon, our next stop today is Columbia College. There are two small art galleries at Columbia College's Brown Hall, the Larson and Hardwick Galleries, one of which is home to a powerful new art show called Post Demure, created by my next guest this morning, Columbia College alumna Fariona Saburi. Good morning, Fariona. Good morning. How are you? I am well and a huge fan of your work. So Post Demure is your culminating BFA exhibition and it is about honouring the strength of women. Your show includes works from three different series, what you call your silk figures, your box figures and pen drawings. So tell us about these series of works and what you want to say through your work. So like you mentioned, there are three series and every series I wanted to focus on a different aspect of being a woman in society. So the first one, the Silk series, was mainly about how women tend to be placed in society. And that's why I made sure the figure itself is not actually in the pieces. So it's just floating silk fabrics that 
are in the shape of a woman, but the woman itself actually is not there. And they were to depict um, different parts of women, so like their strength, their responsibilities, or their weaknesses. But since the women aren't actually there, that is how, in a sense, we should be viewing women as individuals, not their genders that hold an actual role for them in society. And with the second series, the box series, that was to deal with things being censored and highlighted at the same time in a woman's life. So like the piece where the censored parts were the private body parts, and then on top of the censoring, actually having the highlights on top shows that by censoring nudity, in most cases, we're also highlighting these things we're making them a bit too important and it becomes something in a woman that we want to obsess over instead of just seeing it as something that is a part of a woman and the same is repeated throughout the series with different parts being censored to hit on different subjects and with the third series the pen drawings it was more of like a woman in her personal space so i have an elderly woman just sitting there confidently and you know it just shows that she's completely in tune with herself she is aware of who she is and she's not really waiting for anyone to tell her who she is which I really liked about that one and I wanted to criticize on how we tend to see beauty and its relationship with age as if it's something that actually runs out as we get older but there really shouldn't be like an age limit. And this thing is even more so prominent among women. And the second of the pen drawings is a woman just looking at herself in the mirror, which showcases how we tend to see ourselves even like everyone else is telling us how we are and we see ourselves differently based off of what we see on the media, based off of what people say about us. And then coming back to your own space and being able to see who you are as you are, like with definitions that are completely defined by you. It's like a hard thing, but at the same time, it's like one of the most beautiful and like helpful things that we could do for ourselves. Your artist statement for the show, you talk about the pen drawings, about how you want to validate the way women of color and elderly women identify themselves as individuals. Mm-hmm. And I know that whilst you speak from experience as a woman of color, there is a wisdom and a truth far beyond your own years in talking about the validation of elderly women. I wonder, is there an elderly woman in your life who has helped you understand this truth? There are many women in my life that Honestly, the whole show is an inspiration, not like it's not too much of something that comes like deep, deep from me, but also from all these women that like throughout my life I've looked up to and I know the things that they've been through. And then you get to watch them actually handle all these challenges with like such grace and they don't even go around, you know, asking for like, oh, look at how well I'm doing, even though so much is happening around me and with just specifically with age I think the most I've seen that in my grandma because she she basically had to like raise 10 children all by her own because at one point my grandpa passed away too soon and throughout my childhood I never actually sensed that you know because I never heard from her or have even seen the way that she makes it seem like it's such a hard thing to do when it actually is because I do know that she faced 
a lot of criticism right after where people would make comments as in, what are you going to do now? There's no man to help you raise these children with. And it's like such a harsh thing I could imagine is to throw that at someone who's both grieving and then you're also making them feel a bit less by hinting that they might not do as well of a job just by themselves as a woman as they would with another man standing by them. I love that idea. I think that women, older women, struggle a lot or society makes them struggle a lot with a sense of invisibility as they age. Mm -hmm. And and I love the fact that as a young person, you have recognized that truth and are already speaking to it. Their silkworks are so beautiful. Thank you. And I I wonder what draws you to fabric. I know when I look at works by Dutch masters, one of the things I always look at is how how the fabric is painted, the play of light and shadow to define how the fabric is is moving, even though it's a still image. What draws you to painting fabric? Mainly because of its texture. Like you mentioned, the way that light hits and everything about it the shape becomes like super evident and then it moves forward so when I paint fabric I feel like it's actually there which I like because I want to be able to have something fully there that I can communicate back and forth with and also the actual nature of fabric of how it molds the shape of everything that you put in it I really like that idea because it could hold on to every shape. It's a piece of fabric, but whatever you do with it, you can literally turn it into everything else. And I like that because in a sense, I see every single person as that. But we don't tend to sometimes do that because we'll categorize it by, in my case, for the show, in like gender, where gender is our shape. And then we just go with whatever that gender limits us. But then fabric with the show allowed me to make it into something bigger, that there is no limit. And it's just anything and anyone can step into this fabric and step out of it and they make it whatever they want to make it. So in in terms of how you painted them, I mean, the absence of a person, it's so obvious that there's a person missing, that the body is missing, but you can still see all of the shape of the body. How did you paint that? Is there a body underneath it all that just gets covered up? Yes. <laughs> I don't think I could imagine to that accuracy, but I would have um, models come in and they would pose in the fabric. And then while I'm painting it, I would just avoid all the parts that is of a human and then just only keep the fabric itself. They are stunning. Thank you so much. And I just adore your boxed works too. I think they say so much about women in society. One last thing before we close, you are one of the inaugural recipients of the Black Artists in Residence program at All Street Studios, which was set up in response this year to the call for more, much more representation across all of the arts for black and brown artists. I wonder how having this studio space available to you is changing what you are able to create. So having All Street Studios and exactly right after graduating was a really good thing for me because I had this feeling that after I graduate, there are worries like find a job and then try and move on with life to see what the next step is. And having the the Or Street Studios where I could still go in there and be able to still continue my art and not actually forget that this is a big part of my life, that was important. So I think that's the biggest role that it has right now in my life to try and keep reminding me that although I have other 
situations I need to figure out, it's still this that I need to be pursuing. So having that like set space where I come and treat it seriously is really important at this point for me. Well, Fariona Sabura's culminating BFA exhibition, Post Demure, is on display in the Hardwick Gallery until November the 6th, and I really encourage you to go and see it. The gallery is open daily from 9 till 5, and it is free to visit. You know, one of the things that I really like about the Hardwick Gallery is that it feels like you're in a box in another room, and so it makes things really intimate and yet really forceful and intense. And your works are big, and so having these big works in this small space when you're talking about being boxed in it's just I think it's perfect yes that's exactly the reason I chose it too there were like two different galleries and I was like no this one feels nice and dark and moody and it kind of traps the person to stay in that space and just deal with whatever I'm trying to feed you yeah I wondered if you had chosen the gallery or whether it was chosen for you no we were given the option between the two galleries and then we just make a statement as to why we feel this gallery will fit our work better And so this was it for me. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking time to chat today, Fariona. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you. I've got a private jet lined up for our next stop. So grab your masks and let's hop aboard. Our next stop is New York City's Theatre District to check in with choreographer and director Carol Schuberg. A native of Portland, Carol got her BFA in ballet from the University of Utah and has performed on Broadway in Meet Me in St. Louis and on national tours with Cats, Barnum, Gigi and many more. Her choreography credits include Istanbul Grand Opera, the Canadian Opera, as well as works at the Kennedy Centre and Manhattan's York Theatre. Carol has been a regular visitor to Columbia over the past couple of years as a resident artist at Stevens College, where she produced Godspell in 2018 and the fabulous Pippin in May 2019, which was an absolute showstopper of a production and was so good I saw it twice and would have gone back a third time if occasion had allowed. So Carol Schuberg, what a treat to have you on today's show. Oh, Diana, thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight. And thank you for all your wonderful support and in introducing me. And I would love that you were there supporting our lovely production of Pippin. That meant so much to me. So well, and it's, it's hard to believe that it is already 18 months since Pippin was at Stevens College, which is incredible. Time has flown by. Exactly. What have been some of your highlights since then? And by since then, obviously, I mean, up to March of this year. <laughs> truly, truly. I mean, once I got back to New York, I, I got back into my teaching here. And uh, last summer, I, I always go up to New Hampshire and I, I teach and direct at the Triple Threat Theater Camp in Londonderry, New Hampshire. And then I went to the University of Wyoming uh, in August of last year and did a wonderful The Snowy Range Dance Intensive there. And uh, and then in uh, last fall, a year ago now, I uh, I did for the Fashion Week here in New York. It was the 20th anniversary of Target where they have all their wonderful designers. So they hired about 20 of us, all ages here in New York, dancers. And we, you know, showcased all the 20 years of the different designers that uh, Target had, uh, you know, hired in. And that was just lovely. We did that at the Armory here in New York. Um, And then I helped with a a lovely off-Broadway show called Windy Woo and her Naughty Naughty Pets. That was in... (laughs) Uh, last November, uh, you know, and then I, you know, went back to Portland for Christmas and uh, was working on some projects in January and February and all of a sudden March 12th happened. Mm. And 
Broadway closed. I had gigs, you know, lined up for the spring and the summer, of which they were all canceled. So I've been, you know, teaching some over, you know, doing Instagram Live, and I've taught some wonderful Zoom classes. And in fact, the University of Wyoming hired me to teach, you know, for their intensive again this summer. And um, I may, in fact, they want me to come back out there in the spring, hopefully, you know, if we've, things are safe and God willing, we have a vaccine and, and do a whole week of master classes. So I've been doing a lot of little classes here in my apartment in New York City over the internet. Yes. So you've really had an eclectic year. I guess it's always like this for you. You're just ping ponging around the country usually and doing all sorts of different things. Exactly. Usually this point I you know, of the year I've traveled and gone to places not only to teach or direct or choreograph or here in New York, work on projects. And uh, wow, you know, I, I've, it's been such a shift, I'm telling you, Diana, but, you know, we make the most of it. You're an artist in your way as well. So, you know, we just, we try to keep creative in whatever ways we can. <laughs> I was looking up statistics online to see what kind of numbers Broadway had historically. And it was just such a sad graph that you had all of this data. And then it just says, you know, weekending March the 8th, and then nothing. Nothing. That's it. No recorded data since then, because nothing's happened. So I mean, after, like you say, March the 12th, everything on, off and everywhere else, not even close to Broadway, just closed down. But the numbers are amazing. During the 2018 to 19 season, the Broadway industry supported 96,900 jobs, grossed $1.8 billion and received 14.7 million visitors. And now it's just cricket. So how are you and your colleagues surviving these times? Well, interestingly, in August, I went up to Pittsfield, Massachusetts to see the first sanctioned by our union, Actors' Equity Union, production of an equity production, which was, believe it or not, Godspell, which is one of my near and dear to my heart, that one of my best friends, Jerry McIntyre, choreographed, and another dear, dear friend, Alan Filderman, directed, and it was COVID-approved by our union. And it really was the first step back into what we can possibly slowly do. And I mean, the regulations were, you know, they all had to be in masks. There were 10 of them on stage, but they had to be six feet apart. They had plexiglass upstage. And if they were singing, they had to be 12 feet apart. If they were doing a scene, they had to be six feet apart. And those of us watching in the audience all had to wear masks. We were six feet apart. We were, all had our temperatures taken before entering the theater. It was outdoor in a tent out in their parking lot. But can I tell you, Diana, I was watching it and tears were rolling down, you know, onto my mask. I mean, it was so lovely. It was hopeful, yet also, you know, my heart was just yearning to one day be back Fully, you know, but um, as the character, you know, who another friend who played the role of Jesus sat down, you know, stage right, downstage right, a la like Judy Garland at the palace, you know, and sang Beautiful City, which is one of my favorite songs, which has actually been an anthem that I sing to myself, you know, throughout these now eight months here, you know, working through quarantine here. And he sat there and sang that song. And I thought, okay, 
will be back. It, it was just this, you know, and they did articles in it. I think the New York Times had an article about this lovely production of Godspell, and they had the interviews on CBS. And, you know, as I've been keeping in touch with friends, you know, they, they did a outdoor little production of Night Out in Bushwick. Um, Bill Irwin, you know, he did his street performing in this thing called the Busking Project, you know, it was sort of outdoors in Union Square in the Flatiron District. So, I mean, at this moment, outdoors is something that they're working to sort of, but now as we're coming into the fall and winter, you know, that will get more difficult. But I tell you something, Diana, that was so lovely to sit out in the audience and watch a live performance. And did they did the actors keep their masks on even when they're performing or they took them off when they were singing and performing? They were able to take them off. And basically, you know, they would come downstage center, each of them, you know, as they were singing their songs. It wasn't in like they were too close and there was like a duet. But my friend Jerry McIntyre, we call him the mayor of Broadway, who choreographed it, he had them... 12 feet apart dancing, if they were dancing and singing, especially. Um, but they were allowed, you know, and most of the staging was more or less solos coming down stage center because you just had to be so very specific with each and every one of these regulations. Being as how you are so familiar with that production, did it seem strange? I have to say I missed the lovely heartfelt interactions of the cast because that show in particular you know it's like you have this tribe of characters kind of similar to what Pippin was like as well and there was something so loving about as the character of Jesus is telling them the parables and you would usually sort of have them acted out and they were this little troop of players or or like in the song day by day the the character that sings that usually, you know, sings it right to Jesus, but she, the woman that was singing it, you know, Jesus was over there 12 feet away. So the thing that we do as, as theater artists is, as my acting teacher, Wynne Hanman, who, by the way, sadly passed away from COVID at 97, mm-hmm. he always taught us, you know, it's from our humanity. We're sharing our humanity out there, not only to each other on stage, but to the audience. So it was, it was an adjustment for me to say, okay, this is, how we're going to do it for now. How do you feel about returning to a theatre venue on the working side rather than the audience side? What do you want to see in place that would make you feel comfortable? Well, I was thinking about that, in fact, um, a lot this weekend. A dear friend of mine who is a wonderful Broadway musical conductor, we were talking about it. And um, I think we would really have to be somewhere where you not only have the proper ventilation in theaters, but you would really have to have not only the space on stage for the artists, but also the backstage for our crew, for all of the, everybody from the, you know, the the people who work in wardrobe and our wigs, you would just really have to have such expanded spaces and also for our quick change booths and such. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we're going to have to really approach it with such vigilance and digilant, you know, be very digilant in terms of following these rules as we've seen how it can just spread from one one person. That's what happened in the cast of Moulin Rouge on Broadway. And it just went through the right before Broadway closed down. And um, yeah, I would have to have a lot of protocols in place and um, as well for the audience. 
I mean, the difficulty for New York actors, I mean, it's like in London. I mean, those theatres are old theatres. They weren't built with expansion space within them. And so they are cramped and there's not much you can do because there's buildings all around you. So how do you create pockets of safety in those older theatres? You're absolutely right with that. I mean, usually you're either sharing a dressing room with two or four or several, you know, people, or you're packed in a little like closet sized space. And uh, I'm wondering if they're going to have to do shows with less in the cast mm. so that they are able to have distance. Um, I think that maybe they would possibly like with what we call the green room, you know, which is the room wherein when you're at the theater, you'd sit and have your cup of coffee or something, you know, they might have to divide that up into dressing areas. And uh, I mean, I think they're going to have to get incredibly creative, but you're right. Like the, the older theaters in London and here in New York, they were built at the beginning of the 1900s. And so I think they're going to be have to probably have a reimagining of things and also probably have to have proper ventilation systems and they're going to probably have to invest in that in these older theaters. Yeah. I mean, I think also we pay a lot of attention to the people that we see on the stage, the actors and the directors, and but really the people that make theater happen are all the people you cannot see. The choreographers, the technicians, the wardrobe designers, hair and makeup, set builders, musicians, box office staff, the cleaners. Exactly, the ushers, everybody, you know, and all of, like you said, the design staff and you have the scenic designer with their assistance and the lighting designer with, and the sound designer with their assistance and the wig designers and you've got the, the folks coming in and creating the shoes or the, it is, it's this humongous community that, it takes to put a show together and and you've got all of the people in the you know publicity departments and the ticket sales and you know it goes on and on like that but i mean all of those people can also not work in close proximity to each other and when we hear about money being given out through the national endowment for the arts it's usually going to organizations but what kind of support is there for all of those backstage theater freelancers who haven't worked since early march Oh, I mean, to tell you, I mean, not only has our the Actors Fund has been giving a lot of money to individuals, but also my dear friend Tom Viola heads up Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. It started in the early AIDS, 80s, you know, when we were all, we had the AIDS epidemic here. And this organization has continued with so many areas. They've outreached to many people and as well as all across the country and the world. Um, and what's been really wonderful is um, all of these benefits online, too, that, you know, since we can't do things in theater, that they they have been trying to earn funds so that people are able to, you know, apply for these grants or apply for these loans. It, it's interesting because um, many of the younger artists and performers here in New York some have moved away, Diana, because they would be here and be able to get their survival jobs. There's been uh, a lot of apartment buildings. I mean, in the height of the lockdown here in my apartment building, there was only about 30% of us in the apartment building. People had left. And so thank goodness for unemployment. 
And for a while, we had the additional 600 with that. I know that helped myself and many a friends of mine, be it musicians and be it cameramen, be it in all of the areas. But um, the projection is, is that possibly spring 2021, of course, we're hoping there will be a vaccine, but... They're not going to give it out to actors early on, are they? It's going to go to health workers first. So even if there is a vaccine, I mean, it's probably not going to be available to theatre people. Exactly. It needs to go to those frontline workers and health workers and anybody with pre-existing conditions and, and elderly. And um, yeah. So one of the things I was reading about it, this it was a commentary in the United Kingdom talking about freelancers and that gig economy. And it was something that I hadn't really thought about. But this person wrote, our skills are hard won. Our early careers in which we hone our craft in near poverty, subsidizing ourselves with temp jobs and unpaid work experience is the investment we make in our mid and late careers. And as our skills develop and we're able to command higher fees, we pay our younger selves back. So the fear they're talking about in the UK is that you're saying a lot of these people are leaving the industry. And if they leave the industry, when things resume, where is that pool of talent? It's gone. Exactly, exactly. And and in those experiences, I can so relate to, you know, our early artists, our early selves. I remember going to do a Sam Shepard play for $212 a week, but it was one of my just loved it. But somehow or other, you know, we all sort of gathered together and we'd all have dinner together and but these honed our skills you know just as that that was beautiful what you just read and a lot of they've decided to either go back to live with their parents or they've decided that um, maybe to do something else one of the performers that uh, I directed in a show um, in Pittsburgh she decided to go back home to Kansas City and she is going to go back to school you know, and decided to do something else. So it's, I think this shift is going to be affecting um, the theater industry for many years to come. Thinking about your own teaching and the advice that you give to students about auditions and their careers, you call your mantra, the three rules of the universe are distilled. Show up, tell the truth, let go and keep showing up. How does that change now? I know it. I mean, truly, because I think that especially like auditions. You think about that, the people are packed in a room waiting, they're packed in their audition dancing. I think a lot of things will, will remain being done virtually, Diana, you know, even auditions and such. And that first rule of the universe is still to show up. There is something so amazing as a performing artist to be there in the room showing up and being present that is a skill in itself to cultivate and to cultivate that courage as well. It's different doing things virtually, as we all know. Um, and, and, you know, that is the thing that I hope we can come back to. And, and then it goes into the second truth, second rule, tell your truth, be there present in your truth, which is also a honed skill that we develop not only in rehearsals, but then we go to the next audition. And as we meet other fellow artists, I've learned so much along the way from so many fellow artists and great directors and choreographers. And it is such a passed on and beautiful craft in that way. And the ability then to, to be in those experiences and then deal with 
whatever happens at that audition, then you let go. That is a honed skill too. You, you learn how to deal with rejection and go on to the next, you know? So it's a, just as you know, you read in that article from the UK, all of these are honed skills that we build up in our sort of toolbox within ourselves. Yeah. Do you think you'll be teaching students differently now about maybe resilience? Well, it's, it's very interesting because Originally, I was supposed to be doing this week of master classes in Wyoming starting October 5th. And it was going to be their first dive back into in-person teaching. And um, I thought, well, I'll be wearing a mask and probably one of those shields. And um, my students will be, you know, six feet apart. But I'm a really physical dancer. <laughs> and I love doing the combination with them and the warm-up with them and Dance is such a very beautifully interactive art form that you just being in the room, you know, to get the nuance of something or to drill them going back and getting the steps correct. I mean, I think it's going to be, I have to say, weird to have that sort of odd level of separation. You're just sort of doing it all from a distance, which is doable, but... Just like when I was watching Godspell, you know, up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, at the Berkshire Theater Group, I thought, oh, I miss that, that just, that sort of magnetic intimacy. Even if you're not touching each other, there is that beautiful vibration between you, you know, so, yeah. (laughs) Do you see any potential silver lining to these times? I've talked to quite a few performing arts teachers over the last few months and one of the things that they talk about is for students for young artists is how this world of zoom is really preparing their uh, audition tapes so much has to be done digitally now that they're going to have these much better audition performances than they would have had prior to covid because they're learning to work with the medium of film from your vantage point in new york do you see any silver linings. I do believe that is one of the silver linings. Absolutely. I think that people are really honing their skills to perform virtually, to to create that world that they're very comfortable in, because um, I think as much, much more of the auditions are going to start to be all virtual. I mean, a good deal of them anyway. And so that is something, you know, that is something that they can hone. And trying to think of some of the other silver linings, um, I think people are becoming much more savvy in terms of creating these montages of things, everything from like ballet companies across the world and, and, and some of these companies of cats across the world have, you know, done these montages of the choreography and people are coming becoming quite wonderful editors of doing filming of, of these sort of tracks that people will send them of their virtual work and um definitely those savvy technical skills will certainly be honed even more and i also think one silver line is we will be so grateful when we can be in the same studio with each other i mean i don't think anybody will ever take that for granted. You know, I hope not, because I think there is such a, um, you know, as performing artists, uh, just the need to, you know, just in an acting scene, you feed off the other person and and, and you listen and then you respond and same in dance pas de deux or, you know, if you're singing a duet. And so there will certainly be just this 
beautiful gratitude. And I also think I have felt this here in New York, Diana. There's been a wonderful sort of sense of let's take a moment and breathe. Let's take a moment and be calm. Even if I, as I've walked around New York this Saturday, I was out and about in Greenwich Village and all around. And people are out and about and sitting at restaurants outside eating. But you don't feel that real sense of, of people just racing around and, and not being as present. And um, I do believe there's a reset happening uh, in our consciousness and psychically. I do think, and I, God willing, Joe Biden gets elected November 3rd. I have to say that out loud. <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to come, God willing, back to the soul of this country too. You know, so I think... There's a reset that um, is happening on so many fronts. Do you have any inside baseball level gossip about what is being tentatively planned for 2021 on Broadway? Are you hearing anything, assuming that it restarts? Well, I do know, this is inside gossip, that they really would love to have Hugh Jackman is starring in Music Man with Sutton Foster. They really would love to see that more like early spring, the beginnings of it. Because I, what I've heard on the word on the street is that Hugh Jackman has already signed for several other movies. So he's only got this one time slot available to be on Broadway with Music Man, as well as um, Plaza Suite starring Matthew Broderick and Sarah Jessica Parker. I'm sure they also have other commitments. Um, they would love early spring beginnings of, of that. And what I've heard, too, were, you know, some of the bigger shows, you know, Wicked and Lion King and Chicago, they are going to probably have a little bit of time of coming back than maybe some of the smaller ones. The good thing is that, like, I, I did see Diana, you know, it was it's the story of, of, you know, Princess Di. It's a true musical story is how it's built. And I saw the very first preview of that uh, March 2nd, and they went into a bubble and filmed that, which will, um, I'm not sure exactly when that's me, but I, my friend uh, Richard Gata is the dance captain. So they went over there for three weeks in Jersey and filmed that. So that'll be shown prior to the reopenings of Broadway. And that didn't even have a chance to actually have its official opening. The official opening was supposed to be March 31st. And I really loved it. it was, it's great. And so my hopes are that... Um, Spring is a lovely time. I mean, the interesting thing is that the Metropolitan Opera, they canceled their entire season 2020 to 2021, and they're aiming to reopen fall of 2021. Wow, that's ages away. So what's next for you? Well, I guess what's next, I you know, I'm writing my own musicale. That's exciting. It's based upon... The photographer Man Ray, who was there in the 20s um, in Paris, and his muse and also artist in her own right, Kiki de Montparnasse. And it's a musical set in Paris in the 1920s. And I, um, I've been writing it. I, I've been obsessed with Man Ray. I love black and white photos. But I also love Kiki. She was a force of her own, you know, of strong. And it's, um, it's wonderful. It, it sort of has a a little bit of cabaret in there because it does take place in 1929 as things were shifting in Europe. But it's also about the force of, of female strength at that moment in time and creativity. And it's a love triangle in there too. It's, it's a wonderful. Um, so I want to create my own musicale. So 
that's something. And then definitely, you know, when things come back around, um, I, I love teaching too. So all the dance studios here in New York are just like the gyms and everything are closed. I'm hoping, you know, it, that as I create things here in my apartment, I'll be able to workshop these projects and, um, I'm also writing a little book, which I'm hoping that that comes out. It's a quirky, funny book. You've been busy. <laughs> I'll send you a copy of it when it's finished. <laughs> so, you know, I think we diversify our creativity too, Diana. Well, I certainly hope that at some point in the not-too-distant future, you come back to Columbia and do some more work with Stevens College and do another fantastic production that I can come and see three times this time. <laughs> Wouldn't that be neat? <laughs> Oh, goodness. You know, you know, I'm just open. I just, another part of my rules of the universe is to keep your palms open, be open and ready. That's part of my book I'm writing. Whatever's supposed to come in, I'm, I'm ready for. And uh, I would love to see you again in person. And this is what a joy to talk with you. And you, Carol. And you. I mean, we, we can catch up anytime. You know, it's just a, just a phone call away. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I look forward to that. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's really been an absolute thank treat. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. And thank you for being such a force and, and so supportive of the arts. And I mean, I do believe that it is the arts that brings us our humanity and, and reminds us of that. And I, I do believe that when we come on back, we will be stronger. I do believe our really does represent the best of ourselves. And um, that's part of our recovery is, is connecting to our hearts and souls. Well, thank you so much, Carol. Thank you so much, Diana. Bye-bye. That is it for another week. I am so grateful to all my arts pals for, as Carol said, connecting us with our humanity, for nourishing our souls, for helping us see the world through different eyes and brightening the darkness. Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to my guests today, director Alana Barragan-Scott, actor Paula Van Landingham, artist Fariona Saburi and choreographer Carol Schuberg. Thank you also to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song Restless Heart at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.